You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. Well, I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And if you are following along today in one of our church's Bibles, there in your seat, we are on page 921. 921. It is appropriate this Christmas season for us to turn our eyes to none other than Christ. For several months now, we have been walking our way through the book of Philippians, sequentially, verse by verse, phrase by phrase. And today we're going to skip ahead just a few verses to focus on the incarnation. After all, it's Christmas time. And in a way, we're going to see what, what was going on behind the scenes at Christmas. But in a couple of weeks here after the new year, we will hit the rewind button and we'll go back just a few verses and pick up where we left off there in verse 3. But for now, let's turn our hearts to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. And I would encourage you to follow along as I read from Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." If you or I were to walk up to the average person on the street and ask them this question, if you could have one virtue in life, which one would you choose? Can you imagine the different answers that we would receive from people? We would probably hear something like friendliness. I wish I were more friendly or I wish I, was, I, wish I were more likable. I wish that I was the sort of person that, that was magnetic, that would draw others unto myself, that they would enjoy being around me. I want to be friendly. I want people to like me. I want them to see me as a good friend. Someone else might say self-discipline. I'm a pathological procrastinator. And as much as I want to, I just can't get things into gear. Others might say, I I wish I were more assertive. I wish I were more of a spark plug than a spark dud. I feel like like I'm a a doormat to everybody around me. And what will it take for me to, to finally just get outside of my shell? I mean, there are several answers that we might expect to receive, but I think it's safe to say that if we ask that question, no one would say, I want to be humble. No one. I I, I can't imagine anyone on the street ever saying, I want to think less of myself. I want to be low in my own esteem. I want to be low in my thinking. We wouldn't expect such an answer from the world, but what about Christians? What about those whose greatest goal in life is to become more like Christ? How are we to answer that question? Well, back in the fourth century, Augustine, the aging church father, was presented with a similar quiz. He was asked, what are the central principles of the Christian life? To which he replied, number one is humility. Number two is humility. And number three is humility. Humility is arguably the single greatest Christian virtue. 
Everything else, even love, comes into being right after humility begins. In Ephesians 4, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, The very first step in walking in a manner that is worthy of your calling, to which you have been called, is to do so with all humility. That's the very first thing he says. That's step number one. You can't even get to the rest until you put your foot out and take that first step in humility. James says in James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 5, 5. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's so important, it gets repeated verbatim multiple times within scripture. And in case you missed it, He continues in the next verse by saying, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Humility is more than a suggestion. It's essential. It is more than an improvement. It's imperative. You can't become a Christian without it, and you can't grow as a Christian without it either. Humility is essential, it's necessary, it's crucial and critical, it's indispensable, it is vital to the Christian life. And once your eyes have been opened to it, you can't stop seeing it all over the Bible. It's everywhere. This attitude of humility is so important. Humility is the foundational virtue upon which all the others rest. In our text, Philippians 2 Verses five through eight, it sets the bar for the greatest act of humility ever performed. This section of scripture has often been referred to as the great humiliation of Christ or his great condescension. It is the opposite of a rags to riches tale. Rather, it is the true story of riches to rags. No one in the history of history has ever moved from such a height to such a depth as the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to take these four verses and simply provide you with four headings, one for each verse. And I want you to note the steady progression downward as Christ moves lower and lower and lower and lower for your sake. He begins at the highest level in verse 5, and he concludes at the lowest level at the end of verse 8. Our text begins with Christ in glory, and it concludes with Christ at Calvary. But before we get there, first of all, in verse 5, we see the greatest standard. If you're following along in one of your sermon sheets in your bulletin bulletin insert, that is the first blank, the greatest standard in verse 5. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. If we were to isolate this verse from its context and the rest of Scripture, we would have an extremely confusing sentence, wouldn't we? We'd want to know, what in the world is Paul talking about? What is being addressed here? What does he mean you have to own what is already yours? You have to have this mind that already belongs to you. Well, thankfully, this verse doesn't exist in a vacuum. It is, after all, the fifth verse of chapter 2, and the 35th verse of the entire book. So we have to back up to see what this sentence is all about. Paul says, have this mind. Have this mind, this mindset, this attitude, this one way of thinking amongst yourselves. And he has already outlined what that mindset, that attitude is for us in the previous verses. Starting in verse 1, 
He says, so, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus. He says, this is the attitude that you, church, must have. He says, do nothing for self-promotion or conceit, but consider others to be better than yourself. Whether that's actually true or not, it doesn't matter. This is the attitude that we are to have. Notice that this is in the present tense. We are to always, at all times, presently, carry with us this humble mindset. And here's the standard. He says, it is yours in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus sets the standard. If you want to be humble, then you just need to look at the supreme example of humbleness that we could, we could ever possibly look at, and that is Christ himself. How did he think? How did he act? What did he do? And that is exactly what the remaining few verses here in our text go on to describe. In a way, these verses contain it all. They cover his incarnation and his crucifixion and everything else that comes before and after that. But it all begins with this command, this command to look to Jesus, to adopt his attitude, to think like Christ, because he is the greatest standard. Walk in humility like Jesus did. Have this mindset that Jesus had. Be humble like Jesus was humble. After all, Jesus said in Matthew 20, verse 28, that the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to lay down his own life, even as a ransom for many. This attitude, this mindset doesn't happen by accident. You don't accidentally humble yourself. It doesn't happen to you. Sure, we can look at circumstances. We can look at various things around us. We can go to our past and look at hurts. We might even be going through hurts this morning. But those things in and of themselves do not humble us. We must choose to set aside our prerogatives, our desires, our preferences for the sake of others. Because no one accidentally denies himself, picks up his cross daily, and follows Christ. No one naturally serves others, submits to others, or prefers the common good over their own benefit. And so we are told, we are given this command, this imperative in Scripture, to have this mind among ourselves. The very same mind that Christ Jesus had. That's number one. Jesus sets the bar. He is the greatest standard. Number two, he embodies the greatest sovereignty. The greatest sovereignty. Look at verse six. He says, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now I promise we will unpack the rich theology of these verses next month. So come back. But for now, Let's just examine on the surface here what is being said and what is not being said here in verse 6. When Paul says he was in the form of God, that word form, it's the Greek word morphe, where we get our English word metamorphosis. 
This word doesn't just refer to an external appearance. It doesn't mean that he had the outline of God. Rather, this is talking about his internal composition. That is to say, Christ Jesus is the very morphe of God. He is the very essence of God. Again, we see this all over the New Testament. What Paul is not saying is that Jesus was like God, but he wasn't really God. That is not what Paul is saying here. No, he is God. He possesses all the attributes of God, all of the deity of God, all of the sovereignty of God belongs to Christ Jesus. He didn't lack any of it. Go ahead and flip one book to the right over to Colossians. Colossians. This book is chock full of this truth, but just look at what he has to say here in chapter 1, starting in verse 15. Concerning Jesus, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Not just part of the fullness of God, not just a section of God, not just a few of his attributes, all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Long before the manger scene in Bethlehem, long before the Son of God became the Son of Man, he was preeminent in everything. And folks, he still is. Think about that for a moment, though. Throughout all eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit continue in perfect harmony, perfect unity, and perfect equity. Everything that is external and internal to God himself resides in these three persons. They share co-equally in all that God is, including his splendor and his glory. Christ has the likeness of God and the fullness of God within himself. And yet, our text says, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, what does that mean? He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's not to say that he didn't already have it and that he gave up reaching for it. That is not what Paul is saying here. This word grasp, it means to cling to, to hold on to, to refuse to let go. In other words, Jesus refused to refuse to let go of his rights, his privileges, and his perfect fellowship with the Godhead. He never ceased to be God. He never lost his deity, even in his incarnation. But something happened when he gained his humanity. And that takes us directly into verse 7 in our third heading. We go from the greatest standard, which is Christ himself, to the greatest sovereignty, that is, as God himself, Jesus chose to do this. Now here in verse 7, we see that he embodies the greatest servant. The greatest servant. Verse 7, 
says, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Again, there is so much to say about this, but here's the gist. The infinite God took on finite humanity. Think about that for a moment. The infinite God took on finite humanity. Now let's scratch the surface on what this verse is saying. When Paul says Christ emptied himself, he is not saying that Christ lost anything. He is not saying that Christ lost his deity. During his time on earth, Jesus claimed to be God. He received worship as God, and he proved himself to be God time and time and time again. So Paul is not contradicting Christ when he writes here that he emptied himself. So what does he mean? What did he lose then if he didn't lose anything? Well, I think Alex Mottier is very helpful here in pointing out that we have two verbs practically bumping up against each other here in this text. So Mottier argues, and and I love this argument, that we would be better off asking the question, what did he empty himself into rather than what did he empty himself of? Rather than asking the question, what did Christ empty himself of? What did he empty himself into? Because the text says that he took on the form of a servant. Literally, the word here is doulos or slave. Servants had possessions. They had families. They had homes of their own. They punched in, they punched out, and they went home. That's what a bond servant did. But not so for slaves. For slaves, it was very different. They didn't have any of that. And yet, that is the word that is used here to describe Christ. He set aside his own prerogatives, his own preferences, and he took on the form of a slave. How? How did he do that? By being born in the likeness of men. Being born in the likeness of men. Think about that. It's not what Christ gave up, but what he took to himself that humbled him. Think about that. What does that do for our pride? What does that do for our ego? To think that it's not so much what Christ gave up, it's what he took to himself that humbled him. What's the true miracle of Christmas? It's the fact that God the Son took on flesh and he entered the world through a birth canal to be swaddled in a feeding trough, to be rejected by men and then killed as a criminal with all of the judgment of God against sin placed upon him for those who would put their faith in him, and he did it willingly. He did it willingly. That is what our Savior did for you. No one ever started out so high and humbled themselves so low as the Lord Jesus Christ. Here you have an all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere at the same time God who retains his deity but voluntarily refuses to employ all of his divine attributes all of the time. In other words, Jesus remained omniscient. He remained omnipresent and omnipotent and immutable, but he limited the exercise of some of his attributes some of the time. Now, I realize that might seem somewhat confusing, somewhat heady, somewhat theological, so let me just break it down a little bit for you. For instance, think about this, his omniscience, his all-knowingness, There were times when he knew exactly what was going to happen. More often than not, because he's fully God, just as much as he is fully man. But there are also times, 
Like in Matthew 24 when he says, even I don't know the day or the hour. Only my father knows that. In that instance, he chose not to exercise his omniscience. The same is true for omnipotence. Think about it. Sometimes he performed miracles. Sometimes he didn't. It's not that he couldn't. He most certainly could have, but he chose not to. Certainly his omnipresence, that should be obvious to all of us. By taking on a human form, he didn't teleport all over the ancient world. He walked. He was everywhere at the same time. He had that divine attribute of God himself, but he didn't exercise it while he walked in human form. He limited himself. He emptied himself of his self-given right to do whatever he wanted to do whenever he wanted to do it. And as a result, he looked like any other man. He was born in the likeness of men. In other words, he became like us. He came to our earth. He walked in our shoes. He wore our clothes. He experienced our problems. He breathed the same air, faced the same temptations, felt the same pain. He experienced everything that you and I experience, all of it, and yet he was without sin. That's where the difference lies. Because he was both fully God and fully man at the same time. He wasn't part God, he wasn't part man. He was both. And yet the infinite God took on finite humanity. He got hungry, he got thirsty, he felt hurt after a long day of walking, he cried, he suffered, he even developed like a normal human being would. Luke 2.52, this is an excellent verse to write down. It will solve all kinds of confusion whenever you find yourself face-to-face with other believers in a reader-response Bible study. Whenever I moved to Southern California, I was studying Greek and Hebrew in a little cafe down there at the corner bakery in Burbank, and this very nice elderly gentleman wearing a Hawaiian t-shirt came up to me. He wanted to be called Uncle Ronnie. And he asked me what I was doing. If I was in seminary, I said, yes, I am. Otherwise, I'm not doing this for fun, believe me. (laughs) And uh, he laughed and invited me to be a part of his Bible study. They would meet there every Thursday morning at 6 a.m. at the corner bakery. And I loved it. I enjoyed it. It was a wonderful time with believers from all other denominations all coming together. And I remember the very first time we, we sat down, we spent probably 45, 50 minutes talking, we're going through the book of Luke, and we were at this point in this, in this part of scripture, and I remember them saying, I wonder what Jesus did during those years between 12 and, and 30, for that time, you know, the, the, those silent years of Jesus, and they spent probably 45, 50 minutes speculating, did he do miracles, did he do this, did he do that, and I just sat there quietly because I'm the new guy, and eventually somebody was like, hey, new guy, what do you think, and I was like, well, You know, it's not in Luke, but if we turn over to John, we'll see that Jesus performed his first miracle at a wedding in Cana, and he wasn't 12 years old when that happened. So I would venture to say he didn't perform miracles during that that time. And everybody just sat there stunned. And Uncle Ronnie was like, I like this guy. (laughs) Um, Yeah, Luke 2.52 I think it's such a helpful verse. And it's, a, it's an easy verse for us to just kind of read over or gloss over and not recognize the significance of what it's saying. Luke 2.52 says, And Jesus increased in wisdom 
and in stature and in favor with God and man. There's the summary statement of Jesus' life from 12 years old to the time of his baptism. He increased in wisdom, meaning he developed intellectually. He increased in stature, meaning he developed physically. He increased in favor with God, meaning that he developed spiritually. And he increased in favor with man, meaning that he developed socially. Think about that. In every way, intellectually, physically, spiritually, and socially, our Savior developed as a human being. Hebrews 5.8 says he learned obedience through what he suffered. And literally, that is a direct quote. He learned obedience through what he suffered. By taking on humanity, he didn't lose his divinity, but in gaining our frailty, he chose to limit his power. And in doing so, he became the greatest servant. The greatest servant. That's point number three. Paul has already shown us the greatest standard, the greatest sovereignty, and the greatest servant. Finally, number four, we see the greatest shame. The greatest shame. Look at verse eight. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Being found in human form would be humbling enough to descend from the heights of heaven to become one of us, a creature of dust. And yet Christ did this himself. He chose this for himself. He willingly set aside in order to follow the Father's plan with complete obedience. Notice he humbled himself here, literally to death, and not just any death, death on a cross, the most gruesome death, the most agonizing death, the most shameful death. And being fully God, all he had to do was bat an eyelash with the intention of summoning an angel, and thousands would have been there. Legions would have been there. And yet he chose not to. All he had to do was pull back the veil, hiding his divinity, and say, forget this, I've had enough. But he didn't. He was obedient unto death. He humbled himself and descended to the lowest point of self-humiliation by voluntarily going to the cross. Crucifixion was disgraceful. It was depraved. It was demeaning and disgusting. It was the cruelest form of capital punishment ever invented. The Phoenicians came up with it, the Persians put it into practice, and the Romans perfected it. Even then, it was only reserved for foreigners, insurrectionists, and the worst criminals. It was so awful, it was actually against the law for a Roman citizen to be crucified. It wasn't allowed. Friends, this is the humiliation of Christ, that he would condescend so low, while being in the form of God, having equality with God, to not grasp, to not hold on to it, but to empty himself by taking on the form of a slave amongst men, looking like them, being just like them in every way, humbling himself lower and lower and lower, further and further in obedience unto death. And not just any death, the most painful and shameful death imaginable. Death on a cross. Merry Christmas. But before we close, I do want to direct your attention to one more truth here in this text. And then I want to finish things out with one appeal and one final point of application. So one truth, one appeal, and one point of application. Here's the truth. 
the full Christmas story, the story of Christ's incarnation, doesn't start in a manger and it doesn't end at the cross. Look at verses 9 through 10. Therefore, therefore, in light of all of this, in light of his humbling, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. You see how God works? The lowest humiliation results in the highest exaltation. To the extent that you humble yourself before God and man, God will raise you up and exalt you in his timing. Let's not forget Matthew 23, 12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That's a promise. There's no maybe in that verse. God says, this is what I will do. If you exalt yourself, if you promote yourself, if you put yourself above others, what's going to happen to you? God has spoken. He will humble you. But if you humble yourself, what will God do then? Again, there is no maybe in this verse. God will exalt you. He will. When it comes to everything, Christ is our standard. We are told to put on the same mind, the same attitude that Christ had. And yet, no one will ever be as exalted, as high as he is exalted, because no one will ever go as low as he went in obedience and humility. So in light of these truths, here's my one appeal. If you are here today, and if you are not sure that this humiliation has any bearing on your life whatsoever, when Christ the God-man died on the cross in the place of sinners, if you are not sure that your sins have been placed upon Him, then I would beg you today to simply repent and believe. Repent and believe of your sin. You say, well, what is this all about, Hans? It's simple. We as Christians, we don't celebrate a fat man in a red suit. Okay? Not that there's anything wrong with the lighthearted festivities of the culture and all of that. I'm not here to come down hard on that. But that's not the object of our worship. We worship a real man who came to earth who was God, who was in the morphe, the form of God. And he came to earth through a woman's birth canal to be rejected by men, despised by men. And yet he lived a life of perfect obedience. He never sinned once. Not once. He lived a perfect life. And yet he died a sinner's death, a criminal's death. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. He didn't become a sinner. Even on the cross, he didn't become a sinner, but he did become sin for us. Our sin, if you put your faith in Christ, if you believe that he is who he says he is, that he is the son of God, that he is the morphe of God, that he is God, if you believe that, that he is who he says he is, and if you put your faith and your trust in him, that he has gone to the cross to save sinners, that God, 
When he looks at you and putting your faith in him, he doesn't see you anymore. He sees Christ. He sees the perfect obedience of his son because all of those sins that you have committed have been paid for completely on the cross. Christ took the punishment for you. And if you believe that with your heart, if you confess it with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, then you will be saved. You will be saved. And there is so much more to be said than that. But it all starts with humility. It all starts with humility. It has been said that no one struts into the kingdom of heaven. You can't be saved without sinking. You can't be exalted without being humbled. So humble yourself today. Bow the knee to this Lord, this Savior. Learn to think like Christ. Experience the joy of living for him. Don't leave here today without asking one of us about this gospel. There are so many of us here who have given our lives to this gospel, given our lives to this Lord and Savior, this God-man who has given up so much and has been exalted so high. Talk to one of us. Find out more about him. Learn about this gospel. Don't leave here today without doing that. Now for everyone else, My fellow Christians, here's my one point of application. Are you ready? It's very deep. Have this mind that is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind that is yours in Christ Jesus. John Flavel, the great Puritan, said, They that know God will be humble, and they that know themselves cannot be proud. Listen, if you put yourself in the spotlight... You cannot be used in Christian ministry. And God will teach you this lesson the hard way. If you walk past everyone else to the front of the line, if you aren't satisfied with where you are, if ministry doesn't mean ministry to you until you're standing front and center and everyone is looking to you as the man or woman in charge, if quietly serving where God has you isn't enough for you, then guess what? You aren't growing in Christ. You're not moving forward. In fact, you're going in reverse because Jesus would never do that. Jesus would never do that. He would never think like that or act like that. But here's the irony. Here's the irony, folks. When we do think like that, when we do act like that, who who are we acting like? Who are we thinking like? If we're not thinking like Christ, if we don't have the mind of Christ or the attitude of Christ, Whose attitude do we have? Take a guess. That's right. Satan. Lucifer, the devil. Church, we are never more like Satan than when we take credit, when we take the spotlight for ourselves. When we try to raise ourselves above others, we become like him, not Christ. It was Satan who said in his heart in Isaiah 14, he said, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. We are never more like Satan than when we take the spotlight for ourselves. And yet, at the same time, friends, we are never more like our Lord Jesus Christ than when we lower ourselves for the sake of serving others. Again, no one ever started out so high 
and humbled themselves so low as our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, imagine, imagine what if everyone had this mindset? What if everyone had this attitude? What if everyone prioritized their lives around this truth that we are looking at this morning? Think about that. We wouldn't have marriage problems. We wouldn't have church problems. We wouldn't have work problems or family problems. What would the church look like if every believer had this same mind that is already ours in Christ Jesus? What would it look like? So church, I encourage you. This is the main point of application this morning. This Christmas, as we adore our humble king, let's take the greatest gift that we have ever received And in humility, let's count others to be more significant than ourselves. Like like him, let's choose to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, again, we are overwhelmed by the great love and sacrifice and humility that that is our example, our standard in Christ. God, I pray for this church. I pray for every man and woman here today. Lord, I pray that this point of application, this truth, this example that we have in our Savior, that it would find its way deep into our souls. Lord, that it would transform us from the inside out. That we would become more and more like Christ. And that we would think like Christ and act like Christ. Lord, your Son has done so much for us. And you have loved us so greatly in sending Him to be the sacrifice for our sins. Lord, I pray that as we celebrate Christmas in the coming days, that we would not forget just how low the Savior stooped in becoming one of us. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this example. Thank you for this call to be like Christ. Lord, I pray that we would be found faithful. I pray that we would remember these truths, that we would defer our preferences, that we would set our own agendas to the side and that we like our savior would be found obedient even unto death if that's what you would call us to the shameful death on a cross lord we love you thank you again for this holiday season thank you for these these folks thank you for bringing us together finally lord i do ask before we sing one final song of praise that if there is anyone here this morning who is unsaved who has not placed their faith in this Savior. Lord, I pray that you would grip their hearts this morning, that you would call them out of darkness, that you would flip a switch and shine a light, because we know the light of the world has come. Lord, work in hearts this morning and throughout this Christmas season. And we give you all the praise and all the glory and all the honor, because you alone are worthy of it all. In your name. Amen.